People of God, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, a book that I dearly love, and I hope you do as well. And we will be focusing on chapter 1, the first three verses. Please remember that toward the end of October, we plan to move to the Gospel of Luke, and it would be a good thing for you to be reading those first chapters and steeping in them. And also, please, praying that the Lord will bless that series of sermons. Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. Will you pray with me? We ask now, Heavenly Father, that since you have given to us your word that is inerrant in the whole and in the part, that we, your people, will bow and submit to its authority. We know, Heavenly Father, that we are not set in a place of correction over your word, which needs no correction, but we are to submit our hearts and lives under the authority of your word, for we need correction. May we, your people, daily be converted. May we grow in grace. May we be conformed to the image of your Son as we live under the authority of your word. May we be in this service today of worship. May we foster that attitude of obedience. May we understand more deeply the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as shown especially here in his high priestly office. But we also pray for those who may be among us today who are strangers to grace who do not know Jesus. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts to regenerate and to convert. And that someone coming here today, lost and undone, not knowing Christ, would leave knowing Christ. Prepare our minds and hearts for the word of God proclaimed and for coming to the table of the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Standing together for the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. This is the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Please be seated. Christ, who redeemed us from our sins, is firmly secured in his exalted heavenly glory at the Father's right hand. What greater encouragement in our Christian living and what greater encouragement could we find before coming to the table of the Lord than the realities in these first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. I would this morning preach Christ, as always, and I would preach Christ through four questions that we would ask of the text. The first question to ask of this text is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Read again the first two verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. What is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? The text tells us that Jesus is God's own Son. 
The Greek construction here indicates quality. This is who he is in his nature. This is who he is in his essence, which assumes the triune nature of God, that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This teaches us the full deity of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, amazing comfort for us is found here as sinners needing a Savior. Who else can save but God himself? Who else could redeem? And the prophet spoke the word, but now the word has been made flesh. And Martin Luther rightly said, If the word of the prophets is accepted, how much more ought we to seize the gospel of Christ, since it is the Lord of the prophets speaking to us, not a servant, but a son, not an angel, but God. And further, it is not our forefathers he is addressing, but us. I ask you this question, do you need a savior? Do you need a redeemer? The one who came to save me, the one who came to save sinners, the one who came to rescue us from our guilt is the one who assumed human nature, who was God himself. And you cannot go beyond his infinite worth in your need of salvation. Your sins may be of deepest dye. Your guilt, of course, is by nature pervasive. But your need of a Savior and of a Redeemer cannot go beyond the infinite value and infinite worth of the one who came, who assumed human nature, and shed his blood on a cross. Who is Jesus? Jesus, according to the text, is the appointed heir, we read in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is the possessor. He is the proprietor of all things, natural and spiritual, animate and inanimate. All things are under his sovereign management. As Paul tells us in Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. He is the Lord of angels. He is the Lord of men and of all things. He is the one who is capable of regaining what Adam lost and more. All bends to his scepter. He possesses all that is needed to save you from your sins. Who is Jesus? The text tells us Jesus is the creator. Verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. No mere creature could receive the dominion of the universe, but he is the one through whom the Father created the world. Actually, literally it says, through whom he made the ages. The term is translated in chapter 11, verse 3, as universe. Jesus Christ is the one through whom the Father has created the universe. I remember Mr. Spurgeon saying somewhere, I see him standing, as it were, at the anvil of omnipotence, hammering out the worlds that fly off like sparks on every side at each stroke of his majestic arm. That's our Savior. With what can we not trust him? Can you not trust your heart to him? Can you not trust your circumstances to him? If he is the one who created, can he not also recreate, yes, your very heart and your very life? Who is Jesus? According to these verses, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The participle here is 
being. He is the one being the radiance of the glory of God. Not becoming, but this is who he has always been. As A.T. Robertson put it, it speaks of absolute and timeless existence. The verb behind this word means to emit brightness. He is the effulgence of all of the fullness of the deity of God. Whatever glory is in the Godhead is there fully and completely in Jesus Christ. The infinity of God's nature is His nature. God's glory is the beauty of His perfections. And so the text is essentially saying to us, Shade your eyes, people of God. Shade your eyes, because He has resumed unveiled glory. The one who came down, who submitted himself to death, even death on a cross for our salvation, has now been exalted on high, and he has resumed unveiled glory. The glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was. Who is Jesus? The text tells us that he is the exact imprint of God's Nature Again in verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Greek term here, character, means precise correspondence. There is precise correspondence between the nature of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because they are one in essence. This makes the incarnation of our Lord amazingly amazing, doesn't it? When you contemplate who he is that he is the resplendence of the Father and of the Godhead, that he is the one who possesses all of God's nature because he is that splendid, wonderful, loving God. He is the one who assumed human nature, infinite condescension to save sinners like you and me. Who is Jesus? The text tells us also that he is the cosmic sustainer, Again in verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who prevents all from running into confusion. The term used here, ferrein, means to carry or to bear along. It's the word that's used when Peter speaks of prophets of old who were borne along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the word of God. So Jesus Christ is the one who bears, who carries the entire universe in his hand. He holds the world, the whole world, in his hand. He is the one who is carrying it, who is moving it to its predestined goal. And do not exclude your own life from this. Christ is not wringing his hands over the issues that you and I face. Again, I will never minimize the pain and the suffering that you will endure in the fallenness of this world. But I would exalt and magnify the God of grace in our lives. Who promises that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If he is the one who sustains the cosmos, if he is the one who created and who sustains the world that is, if he is the one who carries along this universe to its appointed goal, then he can sustain you and he sustains me. That's who he is, according to this text, people of God. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it a grand thing to consider that in these short verses, all of this is said and more about who Jesus is? Well, there's a second question. If this is who he is, what did he do? 
What he did is found in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now this one, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did he do? He made purification for sins. Or as we read in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Now there's a change of tense here in verse 3 when it speaks of his purification for sins that indicates that what he did, he did once for all. Here we see his glory most brightly. Where did the divine nature shine most brightly? It was in the cross of Jesus Christ. And there, of course, is a hint of the upcoming contrast with Aaron, in which there was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in the Old Covenant. But now there is the Son who has come and who has shed his blood once for all. The Holy Son of God stooped to purify sins even before you lived to sin. He had his eye of love upon you, and he came and shed his blood that you and I might be purified from our sins. And when he made purification for sins, he made that purification effectually. Did he not? Look for your sins, people of God. In the courtroom of God, judicially as you stand before him, look for your sins. Where are they to be found? As far as the east is from the west, so far have your transgressions been removed from you. Are they not cast into the depths of the sea? Have they not been completely removed and eradicated by the blood of Jesus Christ? And what did you contribute to the removal of your guilt and the removal of your sin? You and I contributed nothing. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, who made purification once for all for the sins of sinners that we are saved from our sins. He did not say, I'll set you free from your prison if you do your part. He didn't say, I will set you free from your guilt if you can somehow bring yourself into some savable state. He did not say, if you can just make some movement toward me, then I will do the rest. He didn't say, I will set you free from your prison if you break your chains and break down the prison walls. Who could? We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were incapable of any movement toward God. He came to us. He moved to us. That's what grace is all about. Sovereign, free grace. He came. And he didn't say, break down your wall. He came and said, I now will take my cross and as a battering ram, I will break down the wall of your iniquity. I will free you. I will break your chains. I am the one who saves you from your sins. I will do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's efficacious grace. And the efficacy of his sacrifice is traced to the dignity of his person. How can he do this? How can he achieve this? How can he accomplish this? It is because he is God, 
God the Son, the Creator, the Sustainer. It is because all of the infinite nature of God belongs to Him. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. That's why He can do this great thing of purging our sins. And so with the hymn writer we sing, My full receipt may there be viewed, graven with iron pins and blood in Jesus' hands and side. I'm safe, O death, O law, and sin. Ye cannot bring me guilty in, for Christ was crucified. That's what he did. That's who he is. That's what he did. But then thirdly, where is Jesus now? Where is he now? Again, will you read verse 3, the second part. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus now? He is at God's right hand. He is not in a grave. He rose bodily from the tomb on the third day. He rose from the dead. He ascended bodily on high. The dust of earth sits upon the throne in heaven. The God-man, the one who assumed human nature, the second person of the Trinity who was incarnate, who died for us, rose from the dead and ascended on high, and he took his seat above. He took his seat in a formal act on the right hand of the majesty on high, resuming the original dignity that he had with the Father before ever the world was, assuming the original glory that was his by right. Once humbled, now exalted. Once he came down, now he has gone up. Exalted and exalted to the highest, he is exalted above all. He is at the right hand. What does that mean? The right hand is the place of honor. For the the Son of God is honored above all as He sits upon the Father's throne. The right hand is the place of reward. For nothing can rob the exalted Christ of the purchase that He made of His people when He shed His blood upon the cross. The fruit of His labor, the fruit of His offering, the fruit of His atonement, the fruit of His sacrifice is the infallible salvation of those for whom He died. It's the place of reward. But also, the right hand is the place of rest, showing that his mission is accomplished, that it is achieved, that it is done, that it is complete, that it is finished. The Jewish high priest could not sit in the most holy place on the day of atonement that prefigured the coming of Christ, but Jesus sat down. Atonement is done, the price is paid, it is finished. The one who died for you is your living, regnant Lord who sits at the Father's right hand. But also, people of God, take encouragement from this. The right hand is the place of divine intercession. Which leads us to ask a fourth question of our text. What is Jesus doing? Which, of course, invites consideration of the entire book of Hebrews. But don't worry, we will not preach the entire book of Hebrews this morning. 
But nonetheless, it invites an investigation of the entire book. If the right hand is the place of intercession, what is he doing? He is ministering according to the book of Hebrews as our great high priest. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And as he ministers as our high priest, he's ministering on the basis of his finished work on Calvary. So chapter 7, verse 27 of the book of Hebrews, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And in his ministering at the right hand of God on the basis of his finished work as our great high priest, he is interceding for us, chapter 7, verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you, his people. No wonder. Holy John Owen, the Puritan, said that if there was any one point more than another that Satan wishes to overthrow, it is the priestly office of Christ, since it is the principal consolation for his church. Can you not see that? If there is anything Satan wishes to demolish and destroy in the minds and hearts of his people or in the church, it is this insistence upon the finished work of Christ and his intercessory work that is based upon it. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means for us that he appears in God's presence in the stead of all of his people. It means that he exhibits an accepted offering for our sins. The tabernacle and temple were smeared with blood on the day of atonement. But now he has taken the value of his finished work into the heavenly court and the value of his blood speaks peace with God for his people forever. It means that those for whom he intercedes can never perish It means that those for whom he intercedes, who have yet to believe, will believe because of his intercession. It means that as Christians, when we sin, the value of his atonement and his intercessory work makes the parental pardon, the fatherly pardon of God, available to us, accessible to us, and a reality in our daily lives. My little children, I write these things to you that you sin not. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It means that he protects from Satan's accusations. Do you remember that from the 8th chapter of the book of Romans? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. He is protecting us from Satan's accusations. It means that he delivers us from temptations 
How many temptations have you been delivered from because of the intercession of your Lord? You will never know until the day. And he brings us homeward when we do fail. He maintains our bond of peace and communion. He makes our service, our service offered from faithful hearts, hearts filled with belief and trust and yet mingled with sin. He makes our service acceptable and he presents your prayers. You know those prayers all mixed up, you really don't know how to pray. All of those prayers sometimes mingled even with sinful desires. You long for God's glory, but because morally you're still a sinner, you don't know how to pray. All of those prayers that are offered are offered through your great high priest so that he takes all of the imperfection of your prayer. He wraps those prayers in his own merit and he presents them as your great intercessor before the Father so that there is not one prayer that a Christian prays that goes unanswered. And when it is answered, it is answered to God's glory and for the good of his people. Every prayer. Now, all of this and more, Christ your high priest does for you at the right hand on high. Let me bring a couple of pointed applications from this. First of all, there may be undoubtedly in our midst this morning some people who do not know Jesus Christ. We long for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for you to put your faith in him and to trust him as your Lord and as your Savior. And you need a priest. You need a go-between. You need a mediator. Because God will either have your blood or Christ's blood. You must first trust in Christ crucified to know that you benefit from Christ glorified. And maybe there's someone here, you're so hard-hearted and recalcitrant, you say, I don't want to be converted. I don't want to be saved. Haven't you heard the text? The text tells us that Christ died for sinners. He rose from the dead. He ascended on high. He sits ruling and reigning. Have you not heard He is the regnant Christ. And if he intends to convert you, converted you will be. You cannot stop him. He will change your stubborn will and you will long for salvation. But the means that he uses, the mean primary mean is the preaching of the word of God as the spirit of God opens the heart to receive it. And let me tell you, if you begin to understand what it means that God is a holy God, that he is righteous in all of his ways, that he hates sin, that he hates iniquity, that each of us is born dead in trespasses and sins. We are under the condemning wrath of Almighty God. If the Spirit of God begins to open your heart so that you see and understand that reality, then you will begin to realize you don't want to begin to deal with this holy God without a mediator. You do not want to begin to deal with the holiness of God directly, for there's nothing in it for the sinner but wrath and condemnation. The only way in which the sinner can deal with God is by way of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. You need a priest. Do you trust in Christ? Have you embraced him as Lord? Have you come to him? Have you laid down the weapons of your warfare? Have you said, I don't trust myself anymore. 
I am not attempting to clean myself up. I'm not attempting to come into the holy presence of the holy God. I know that there is nothing there but wrath and condemnation. I trust Jesus and I come through him, the only high priest of his people. Have you done that? But believer, this text is addressed to us as the people of God. And here, will you find your strength to go on? Jesus is the Son, the appointed heir, the creator, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the cosmic sustainer. He purged your sins. He took his seat above and he intercedes for you. This is where you find the strength that you need to persevere in the midst of hardship and trial. And yet I wonder, do we make use of this as believers in Jesus as we ought and as we should. Let me go to that great old evangelical Anglican writer, J.C. Ryle, from a prior century, who wrote these marvelous words. They're some of my favorite. Ryle says this. Please take it to heart. If Christ is really the priest of our souls, let us use him regularly and keep back nothing from him. It is a sorrowful fact that many believers enjoy the gospel far less than they ought to do for lack of boldness in using the priestly office of Jesus Christ. They go mourning and weeping along the way to heaven, perplexing themselves by pouring over their infirmities and sins and carrying ten times as much weight on their backs as Christ ever meant them to bear. Ignorance, sad ignorance, is too often the simple account of the condition of these people. They think only of the death of Christ and not of the life of Christ. They think of his finished work on the cross, but forget his priestly intercession. If this be our case, let us turn over a new leaf and change our plan this very day. Let us think of Jesus Christ as a loving friend to whom we may go morning, noon, and night and get relief from him every day. Cast thy burden on the Lord and he will sustain thee. Let us live the life of faith in the Son of God and hold communion with Him continually. Let us use Him every morning as a fountain of grace and help and drink freely of that fountain. Let us use Him every evening as a fountain of absolution and refreshment and draw out of Him living water. He that tries this plan will find it for the health of his soul. Now, is he not right? Is it not true? That often we go through this life as Christians with heavy weights upon our shoulders. But if we would but believe we have a divine intercessor, a great high priest in heaven. Oh, how life would be different for us. So are you fatigued? The people to whom the book of Hebrews was written, these people were fatigued. They wanted to give up. They wanted to go back. Are you tempted to go back? Are you tempted to give up? Get your eyes off yourself and put your eyes on Christ. And here we find security. When Satan, when Satan can disannul the everlasting covenant of grace, when Satan can drag Christ from his throne of intercession, then you can be lost. Which means never, never, never. Salvation depends upon the success of Jesus Christ. Now here be reminded that Christ's intercession, and I'm reflecting 
something that I've brought to you before. I, I dearly love doing it. I'll do it a thousand times more. Uh, the, um, the thoughts, very briefly, uh, of an old divine whose name was William Symington. Here be reminded that Christ's intercession does these things for you. Christ's intercession as your high priest meets your every need and infirmity, every one of them. Christ's intercession is characterized by absolute purity. Christ's intercession is omnipotently compassionate, if I may put it that way. Hebrews 4, 14 and following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His high priestly work is omnipotently compassionate. The high priestly work of Christ is prompt. To quote Symington, he is never absent from his place. God's people know always where he is to be found. He is ever at the right hand of God waiting to undertake what they may commit to his charge. The high priestly work of Christ is earnest. You think you're earnest in your prayers when you hurt, when you're in pain, when you care about someone? The earnestness of your prayers cannot compare with the earnestness of the value of the blood atonement that is presented in heaven for you. His intercessory work is authoritative. His intercessory work is prevailing as is his blood And think of this, the intercessory work of Jesus, your high priest, is constant. He never takes a break. It's ongoing. It's every minute. So with Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, we can say this. We may, with a heart sprinkled with the blood of Christ, now ascend into heaven, answer all objections, and triumph against all enemies we may go boldly to God and demand the performance of his promises. By demand, he doesn't mean some irreverent posture. He simply means what Christ has done is so sure and certain that we may go and say, Lord, you're the one who promised. Do what you promised. And so now we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. We remember what our high priest did for us when he shed his blood on the cross, but we also remember until he comes. We also remember that he sits regnant on the throne and intercedes for every believer in Jesus Christ in the world, every believer who ever will be, for every believer who sits here now. And so I conclude with the words of Isaac Watts, Jesus, the King of glory, reigns on Zion's heavenly hill, looks like a lamb that has been slain and wears his priesthood still. He ever lives to intercede before his father's face. Give him my soul, thy cause to plead, nor doubt the father's grace. And with that ringing in our ears, let us prepare to come with joy to the table of the Lord.
And God's people said, Amen. Amen.